Welcome to Tablets Parsha in Progress, where we talk about the Torah portion of the week and why it matters. I'm Abigail Pogrebin, author of My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wandering Jew. And I'm Rabbi Dov Linzer, president of Yeshivat Chovevei Torah Rabbinical School. And we're talking Torah together, not just because the Hebrew Bible is so challenging and relevant today, but because we found that this ancient text comes to life in conversation, especially between two people who practice Judaism very differently. So this week, Dove, we're talking about Vayikra, the first Parsha in the book of Leviticus. Right. And this Parsha gives us a whole litany of animal sacrifices. Chapter and verse, you know, about what type of sacrifices a person can bring, what type of animals can be used, male or female, cow, goat, or sheep, how this cow is supposed to be slaughtered, how this bird is supposed to be slaughtered, how do you wash it, cook it, cut it up, put it on the altar. So we've decided to focus our discussion of animal sacrifice on how foreign that feels to modern ears. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds to me like you're needing to feed God or fill God up in some way. Well, wait, back up there. This, in my opinion, this is not about feeding God. That was a pagan idea, which, you know, maybe you can hear some echoes to in the text, like the sacrifices are called the bread of the Lord, but it never says that God eats or consumes the sacrifices or that they are there to feed God. Isn't the idea that we are giving, we are killing an animal and offering it up to God? Yeah, but that doesn't mean that it, God is consuming it. I mean, I think that the most anthropomorphic that the Torah gets is when it says, and God smells the pleasing odor of the sacrifices, which again could echo a more pagan idea. So God smells but doesn't eat. eat. And, you know, Rambam actually says, because smelling Rambam is, some, is Maimonides. Maimonides, that's, thank you, that smelling is something you can do at a distance. So it's more able to describe God that way than eating. But I actually think it means that God is pleased with our actions. And it's not God who needs the sacrifices. I think we need them or we needed them as a way to connect. Okay, need them why? Do we, do we, were we pro- pro- proving our fidelity to God by killing essentially God's creatures and wasting the burned meat because we we're offering it up to nobody? Well, I mean, I think to one degree, it is about giving something of value. These animals were of great values. And we're giving them up. And when it's powerful, yes, when we sacrifice something and we say that we recognize God has given us material success and a way of showing this is we take some of that wealth and we give it back to God. But couldn't that wealth have been used in more productive ways, I guess? is like You could give it to the poor. You could use it to do good deeds. I totally agree. So I think it was a, a lot more than that. I think that the act of a sacrifice is has is powerful, like symbolically to the worshiper, because let's focus- To the person the, doing to it. To the person doing it. Let's focus. The Hebrew word for sacrifice is not is korban. At the root of that word is karev, which means to draw close. And I remember korban from the Seder plate. Right. Because, you know, like the lamb shank is like reminds us of the korban Pesach, the, Pesach, the Paschal sacrifice. So, you know, when you give this thing up that you help to produce something that you feel connected to and you place it on the altar and then it burns and the smoke rises up to heaven, I think in some ways you feel that that symbolizes your attempt to reach out and give and connect to God. Sounds like it kind of moves you. Well, I think it does. I think I, 
I, you know, am wistful. I, I don't know, can you be wistful for something you never had? But I'm wistful for the opportunity to do something that that concrete. And I mean, I think that... Are you wistful for animal sacrifices? No. I, but I'm wistful for an experience that will allow me that type of a connection. I mean, I think with grain sacrifices, that was partially true. You know, you grow... Grains, the, like... The wheat and barley. The and harvest, you, you know, right. You harvest, you invest, you're connected to it. But I think it's more true about animal sacrifices. I mean, it's something that's... Uh, the animal's a Alive. It feels more like us, closer to us, and we can see it as like a type of a substitute for ourselves. Well, you've also mentioned to me that animal sacrifices took the place of child sacrifices, um, horrifically as that was, but it used to happen. Mm-hmm. And and that echoes the binding of Isaac, which we've talked about, the Akedah, when the ram in that story, right, was offered to God yep. instead of Isaac, like, go kill the ram, Abraham, you don't have to kill your son. Exactly. Um, and now animals were offered to God instead of people's kids. Right. And I think the prevalence of child sacrifice in the ancient world shows just how pervasive, like, this religious instinct was that if to people, give that much yes, essentially and to give of yourself like not just something of value so if you can't give your life you're going to give your child's life if you can't give your child's life you're going to give an animal life so you know yeah. the, the story of the akeda is no human life but then the animals become that way of creating that connection and and standing in for the intensity in a sense yeah of what you're giving up so maimonides the 12th century philosopher you call the rambam <laughs> seem to think that uh, animal sacrifices were, were lazy, right? That was just a way for Jews to understand faith because they were rookies at this. And a concession. A concession. And the quote is, change was very difficult for the Jewish people, meaning they were not used to channeling worship this way, right? They weren't used to worshiping God in the true way. Okay. Without animals. And therefore, the quote continues, God gave them animal sacrifices because that is the type of service they were used to, not because it was the best type. God wanted to turn their sacrificial service of idols to the service of the one God. So he's teaching them monotheism kind of with baby steps, right? Right. So the, the Jewish people were accustomed to worshiping idols. They didn't switch easily to worshiping one God that they couldn't see or touch. So animals made faith more literal. Is that right? Exactly. Keep on doing the same worship, just direct it to the true God. We're not going to get you yet to stage two where you're supposed to get to the higher forms of worship. Um, But, you know, against Maimonides, you know, he likes to frame this as an ancient pagan-like impulse. And I think that no longer exists. And maybe that was true for him because he was total intellectual and could live a life of the mind. And But I think most of us need to also live a life of the body. And we're human and we're physical. And we need ways that are concrete to connect. And I feel that this is uh, true even until today. Not necessarily the need to do it this way, but that when we're able to do something more physical in our worship, we are, we'll be able to feel more connected to God. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not an animal person particularly. I admit I've never had a pet other than, I guess, the class hamsters I got to take home for one weekend in second grade, and I actually lost them. But I know I'm not the best person to talk about human to animal relationship. But the whole sacrifice model, it just it does. I'm stuck because it seems very grisly and very excessive to me. And I can't imagine that God really needed such a bloody display. Look, I mean, I agree with that. I don't think it's God who needs this. I mean, there's actually a, a, a chapter in Psalms or a section from a chapter, Psalms 50, that says this explicitly. So I'm going to read it. It says, will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? That's God speaking. Offer unto God thanksgiving 
and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. So it's, what do I need your sacrifices for? So he's saying, I don't need all that? I, I don't, don't need, need you to drink the blood of goats? Right, I don't need to bring, I, God don't need to drink the blood of goats. I see. But that might be a critique of temple worship in favor of prayer, like give me your prayers. Right. I think that's true. But at the end of the day, I don't believe God needs this from us. God is giving this us as a way of a powerful, visceral form of worship. Um, you know, I also want to, because you mentioned something before about the taking of the animal life. And I want to respond to a critique that I sometimes hear, which is like, why would God want us to give up an animal life, you know, just to do this type of ritual? And, you know, my response is like, look, buddy, if you're a vegetarian and you never take animal life for buddy, anything else. Buddy, that's strong language. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Them's fine. Words. that's a legitimate <laughs> critique. But if you're a meat eater, and in the past everyone was a meat eater, then, hey, you take animal life to fill your belly. So why shouldn't we take animal life to do something that is powerful for us and allows us, in, for us, allows us a way of connecting to God? Okay. Well, I'm not exactly myself complaining about animal rights, but I believe in them. What I'm saying, though, is I don't see how it's helpful or particularly spiritual even to God or to human beings either to sacrifice animals. It just seems primitive. It seems repellent. You know, you, you read this stuff, animals were slaughtered. The blood, it was blood and guts everywhere. This was a, a very kind of ugly, messy scene. And it just seems very unsacred as an experience. I mean, look, I totally get it. It does not work work for us. I mean, the rabbis say, get this, that the priests would walk around the temple ankle deep in blood. There would be like two inches of blood on the floor oh. in the temple. And they said, and that made them look so beautiful and so holy. You know, to which I can only say, huh, what? But, you know, I feel that when we pray nowadays, it's just too abstract. If we would sway more or sing more, find ways to be more embodied. It doesn't have to be with blood and guts. I'm not saying that. But I, 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 I'm so I, relieved. Yeah, but I, I just want us to find ways to get more in touch with deeper religious feelings that I think we're sometimes too like sterile or too fastidious to try to connect to. And it makes me sometimes you know envious of Muslims who do a real prostration every time they pray. And there was a time when Jews used to do that as well. Uh, now I think, as you said, like we're just we feel that we're too refined for that. You know, that might be a New Year's resolution for me to prostrate myself in 2019. All right, then I'll see you on the floor. Shabbat shalom, Dov. Shabbat shalom, Abby. We hope you'll join us next time for Parsha in Progress. I'm Abby Pogrevin. And I'm Dov Linzer. Nice to talk to you, Dov. Nice talking, Abby. Parsha in Progress is written and hosted by Rabbi Dove Linzer and Abigail Pogrebin. It's produced by Shira Talishkin and edited by Sophia Steiner-Evoy. The show is executive produced by Josh Cross, Jacob Siegel, and Tablet Magazine.